1: berry Chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. On today's episode of New Books Network, I'm joined by Dr. Susan Graysell, Professor of History at Utah State University. We'll be discussing her recently published book with Cambridge University Press titled The Age of the Gas Mask. How British Civilians Faced the Terrors of Total War. I'm Julia Gossard, a New Books Network host and associate dean for research in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. In the age of the gas mask, Professor Grazel traces the fascinating history of one object, the civilian gas mask, through the years 1915 to 1945, all to better understand the pivotal role the gas mask had in total war contexts. An expert of World War I and gender history, Professor Grazel skillfully and beautifully analyzes the gas mask, connecting the object to larger issues of how warfare shaped culture politics and society thank you so much julia i'm really excited my first question is what can the lens of a single object like the gas mask help us to bring into better focus about the past and going along with that what was your approach in terms of studying the material culture of this object and more generally, the past.
1: I wasn't trained in material culture necessarily, and I've learned so much from my colleagues in anthropology and my colleagues who work in public history and museum work from doing this. And I was lucky enough early on when I was interested in figuring out what to do with this research I collected when I was doing a project on the history of aerial warfare Mm -hmm. and the fact that air raids and the use of chemical weapons overlap incredibly neatly, and the fears about air power were also fears about chemical weapons. And I felt like I hadn't really explored that. I had These amazing images and diagrams and, and tests, and I thought, oh, this will be an article, right? I'll read an article on the gas mask and how it became a civilian object, And then I started talking about some of this material in rooms filled with folks from anthropology who asked me a series of questions and gave me a set of readings and a new way to think about the power of the object itself and the fact that objects have political lives, they have social lives, I would argue they have emotional lives, that there are many things that you could learn just from thinking about a single object. And in this case, it was also just evidently true, the more research I did, the object I was becoming interested in had this precise chronology, which I think a lot of objects don't have. So the civilian gas mask is really invented in the First World War. And by the time you get to the eve of the Second World War, almost every state that plays a major role in that conflict has developed some form of individual anti-gas protection. So that itself as a transnational story was really interesting. And I thought, wow, this really is the span of the world wars. And it comes into popular life. It comes into government-sponsored ideas. It's it shows up in all these personal documents, and then it disappears. Mm-hmm. And so that that chronology and the fact that it overlaps so neatly with the things I was fascinated about but what makes war modern, how do ordinary civilians cope with the change, you know, kind of context and parameters of modern war. How do we make the unthinkable normal, right? How do we make it okay to bomb civilians from the air? Okay to think about using chemical weapons? How do states and then, you know, from the level of the state to the level of the individual, how do they come to terms with that? So it just became so interesting to learn all of these new approaches, right? There are different questions that anthropologists ask about material culture. You know, I'm much less interested in what the precise materials are and why you use a certain kind of fabric or why you use a certain kind of substance for a filter, and the variations on that. I was so much more interested in how humans engaged mm-hmm. with objects, and you know, there are anthropologists who think about that too, but. Having a different set of questions to help me understand what I was looking at was just, it was a gift to, at this stage in my life, learn all of these new things.
0: Yeah, I think that that's one of the aspects of your work that is so interesting because the gas max is truly at the center of this work but you've opened it up to where it's humans interactions with it and feelings around it and the symbolism that it carries for so many of these humans living through this period and it's two very different generations right but it somehow you know transpires both the first world war the inter-year wars and world war 2 all in one book, that you've really brought, I think, that human element to this as well.
1: That's very much what I wanted to do. I mean, the sort of history of the world or women, or you know, name a topic in a hundred objects just gives you this fleeting uh, glance. But I thought if we really thought about an object that encapsulated an era, mm-hmm. and I think for there are lots of us working on different time periods, you could think about what is one thing that encapsulates as a segment of society during that time period. But for me, it was just the journey that this object made from a military object to a civilian object, from an object carried by men to protect themselves in war zones to an object given to men, women, and babies Mm -hmm. um, by the state. that it 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 joins the two world wars it joins the worlds of combatants and civilians it joins the world of men and women it joins the world much more uneasily of metropolitan colony it just it just seemed that thinking about it was a way to give me a new perspective on this time period
0: absolutely one of the things that i really like about this is how much you were able to still bring in gender, which I know is a huge part of your background. And I think how you think of yourself as a historian, as a gender historian. And throughout this book, there's so much about... Not only, I think, the relationship of women in the gas mask, but also masculinity is in there as well in this understanding of how degendered gendered components go along with the gas mask. And that's been very fascinating to see.
1: Yeah. I think that when I first started telling people that I was writing a history of the civilian gas mask, I got a lot of uh, questions. I'm not a historian of science or technology. I'm hist- I am very much think of myself as a historian of gender and women but this is about an object in some ways that is explaining what it means when men can't protect the kind of feminized civilian population, when, when you can't defend a border, when you know, we're weaponizing the air in these two different ways, and you, you literally can't, in the words of uh, you know, the British Air Raids Precaution Circular of the summer of 1935, which is the first time that civil defense in Britain is introduced, there's no guarantee of immunity is what they say. And so what does it mean to come to terms with that? And then these assumptions about women and children, you know, be able to use a gas mask. There's this kind of rhetoric about gas discipline and how hard it is to train people to face the terrifying prospect of, you know, a cloud of poisoned air rolling towards you. And all of these assumptions about use a gas mask, and then interesting conversations about who sort of deserves a gas mask. As we start you know, using this object to protect certain populations with the promise of protecting everyone under the purview of the state, but actually never fulfilling that promise.
0: That really segues, I think, nicely into one of the questions that I had for you. So in your third chapter, Defending Civilians, you have a section titled Protesting Gas and Gas Masks, the Disarmament Conference and its Aftermath, which I really liked this chapter. You discuss the interwar calls for disarmament. And I was particularly struck by the gendered language that was used throughout many of these different calls that were there, both in the anti-gas mask language as well as in sort of pro-gas mask language that was being used as well, that, that element of protection. There's a quote that you provide from Dr. Nestler that says, quote, a mother could not endure to hear her child crying under its mask. Women and children certainly not be able to make full use of protective apparatus. Every gas attack would cause a panic. I found that really interesting, especially given the image of women during World War I as like the backbone, right, of the empire, the backbone of the home front that's there stepping into the roles of men. Yet here we have in the interwar periods, this sort of immediate pushback towards gender norms and gender stereotypes being used here in order to think about this protective element and will it really serve that protection or not? So I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that gendered reality that happens.
1: So that's really such a great question. And it's such an interesting way to think about the post-World War I moment. And one of the questions, those of us who've studied know, women in particular in the war get asked is, you know, what did women do with the vote? And this rhetoric of sort of liberation and backlash, which I think we've gotten beyond, but this whole idea that women uh, gain access to certain kinds of public uh, spaces and then um, retract from that. And one of the things that I'm not alone in this, there Lots of really great work on this internationally is that women are using their voices, in some cases uh, their access to the vote, in other cases just the sort of rhetoric of organizing in a world that's traumatized by war to argue against the next war and to curtail the most deadly weapons uh, that have been unleashed in the First World War, and they're using the kind of gendered uh, stereotypes that are used to separate women in a particular way in order to gain a public voice. The shift that I found myself facing in a variety of different forums was a rhetoric in the First World War that more or less said, women are opposed to war as mothers because they cannot bear to see the, the Sons that they've given life to sure. sacrificed in wartime. Right? And there's a very and, and there's you know visceral language about this going back to Olive Schreiner in 1911 and women in labor and the way that gets the kind of rhetoric about mothers in wartime and thought about that for a long time that that doesn't guarantee that right? their mothers who are incredibly patriotic and gain access to the public sphere by saying we've, we've we've sacrificed our sons to the nation, but in this moment suddenly there's no safe place that women. And children can go to to be protected from. When you combine chemical weapons and air power in this kind of nightmare vision of an aerochemical war that is really, I'd say, haunting the interwar imagination, then suddenly it's all women and children, not just mothers of sons, not just women who have children of a certain age who could be sacrificed in war, but everyone is at risk in this new way and there's a new vulnerability. And that's part of the discourse around the gas mask is that it's going to be the device that will protect everyone, but it will protect them in part by managing, you know, panic, and that's somehow linked to what 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 will make air power useful, right? The sort of theorists of air power in the interwar period. Really see it as you terrorize the civilian population so that they sue for peace. Mm -hmm. And what makes you know air power even more terrifying is this layer of chemical weapons. So, what can you do to prevent that panic? So there's there's lots of different layers in this commitment to the gas mask as an object. It's the literal protection of your capacity to breathe, but it's also a belief that you can use the gas mask to move from a place of greater danger to a place of greater safety, that it's going to make people feel protected, safer. And so this whole debate about whether women can stand to have their children in a gas mask is deployed in really interesting ways by both sides, right the disarmament, pacifist, anti-militarist side, but also folks planning civil defense and trying to figure out what they're going to do in this new reality where it's not just enough to mobilize men in arms, but you're going to have to mobilize a civilian population to face the threats of new forms of warfare.
0: Absolutely, and I think going right along with that, I I recently attended a talk that you gave at Utah State University about the age of the gas mask in which you showed some amazing images of the gas mask in a variety of different contexts, many of which are, are in your book. And I have to say for the listeners, the images in this book are fantastic. You have so many that are gripping, thrilling, terrifying all at the same time. And that was really my thought looking at these images especially of babies. So you you shared in the opening part of your talk this image of the famous image that you're talking about in the book of the mother with the child in front of the hearth. You have this sense there in terms of this is a mother trying to protect her child. It's simultaneously very endearing and also horrifying. And you have another image of this baby smiling widely in this gas mask in front of sort of a demonstration of all of these mothers with these baby dolls and gas masks. And then Later on, you're showing an image of a cartoon baby, which is figure 3.6 on page 78 from the general election of November, 1935 of the Labor Party that says stop war, vote labor. And it's this clear image that this is a horrifying reality. Baby should not be in gas masks. Yet you have these other images that are very interesting to look at and thinking about that protection angle. I'm historian of childhood and youth so of course I'm drawn to these images of the baby but I wondered you know how that symbol of a baby is used on both sides in a similar way you've talked about gender
1: yeah that is something that probably drew me that first photographs that I found as, um realizing kind of middle stage of the research how challenging it was to for the on the part of the state to develop anti gas protection for infants you couldn 't just size down the gas mask you really had to invest in doing this and it's years and years there's a promise of this. The British government has settled on a design for the general civilian respirator well before it has any idea of what will work on on infants and all along with that, and again, this is a transnational um image that I've encountered, those arguing to control the use of air power and chemical weapons, those arguing for disarmament, are very not ubiquitously, but they keep returning to this image of the baby in the gas mask. Like That's the horror you don't want to do, mm-hmm. right? There's uh, anti-militarist tracks. There's science fiction novels that have an anti-militarist uh, slant in the interwar period that all imagine a world in which you have to put babies in gas masks as the realm that you don't want to go to. I mean, that's what um, true horror looks like, and there's something very uncanny in in almost a Freudian sense about these images, right? The things that really sit uneasily together, and so trying to find a way to make, and when they're developing anti-gas protection, what becomes the baby's anti-gas protective helmet, (laughs) just to give it its full uh, formal name, they really do think about what it looks like and about the desire to have a large enough window that uh, the mother can see uh, the baby in it, and that's supposed to make her feel better But then when they start distributing these things, they can't control the reactions to this. And so you definitely get people who think that this is not a gift of a benevolent state to keep mothers and children safe, but just something horrible. What is is this what war has come to? There's really a transformation in those middle middle years of the 1930s of that decade. I think, in part, because of the the return of poison gas in warfare in the Italian campaigns in Ethiopia and the publicity given to that, so that uh, Labour Party poster is November of 1935, sort I mean, as those words are first coming to the attention of European states about you know poison gas, this element that no one is supposed to use, right? It's it's so widely condemned. The return then of you know kind of air power in a much more vigorous way, so that the sort of horror of the image of the baby in the gas mask, there's a real investment in turning that into something that's supposed to make you know mothers and their children feel safe. And you can see in the kind of last years of uh, the 1930s before the formal outbreak in Europe of the Second World War in September of 39, kind of competing images. Should you still be horrified by this or should you start to be demanding, you know, instant protection, better protection, you know, asking where is the gas mask for my baby, rather than thinking, here's a state that's preparing me for war by giving me a gas mask and assuming that my baby is going to be at risk. Mm-hmm. And that tension just plays itself out Um you know, very powerfully. And it's almost a war of images rather than words. I was struck by the image that you have as well
0: of the, it's almost a dystopian nightmare in some instances, because it is the mother walking down the street in a full gas mask herself with her. And I think this is a prototype, right? That was made with the pram that, you know, closes up and has the baby inside. And we can talk about these connections in a little bit, but to me, looking at that was very similar to seeing the images of teachers in classrooms in 2020, wearing those full on, essentially gas masks or os- oxygen masks and saying they're going to teach that way. And it was something very, I think, parallel there for me to see, but that that understanding that tension between this is protection, but then you look at that sort of war of you're saying the images and you're like, I don't want
1: that reality. This idea that somehow you were going to feel safer putting your baby in, in this particular device that is uh, circulated in 1937, that I was described as like, it's a little rolling coffin almost, mm-hmm. right? Kind of unwheels. There's nothing, you know, from a modern sensibility, I would say, or, or my own, that's very reassuring about this. But this idea that um, you might need to prepare for this, what will that look like? how will that make the population feel safe? Because I think there's always this emotional story there, this story about trying to control people's feelings about this preparation and the reality of a mode of warfare that is pretty ubiquitous in the Second World War about waging war against civilians. They're not protected. And what that means to come to terms with in terms of know preparing for the next war you know this is supposed to help and yet the reactions of individuals particularly individual mothers to this is something the state can't control hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news
0: This issue of protection you alluded to earlier as well, in terms of British Empire was more than happy to sacrifice their bodies, right? Ask for their labor, ask for all of this. But when it came down to offering them protection in terms of were they going to send gas masks to those civilians in the same way that they were sending the civilians in England, the gas masks. And you you deal with this in chapters three and four, where they're not viewing the imperial subjects as worthy of the protection except in very strategic areas like Singapore, which you later say those masks actually never got to them. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about this idea of the lack of protection for colonial civilians and how that may have contributed to the large decolonization effort that happens right after World War II and how does this make civilians feel and what's the reaction?
1: What's what's interesting about this is I don't know And that is something that is a a question for, for future research about the impact. This is an imperial object. Rubber is coming from the empire. Other components are being sourced. There is really interesting discussions in the middle 30s about using a coconut as one of the ways that you could possibly have filters in gas masks. They're very much not sourced from within um, Europe and certainly not sourced from the British Isles. But when, again, in the middle of the Second World War, there are officials reaching out to colonial and imperial spaces saying, how many civilian gas masks do you have on hand? And What could you do if there was an attack and distribute them? There are a lot of answers that come back with the words nil in response. And it's very much a sense that while Britain is giving gas masks free of charge, and that's a fairly unique policy, and not differentiating between spaces within England or Scotland more likely to be attacked or less likely to be attacked, there's a universal policy within those spaces that never applies. So one of the questions about civil defense is always a question about like which bodies merit protection, which bodies you have to protect, which bodies should you protect. And those are all kind of internal debates that you can see um, in the records. And this unwillingness ever to commit resources to provide this protection.
0: One of the aspects going along with that that I found so interesting is how there's still a massive amount of scientific racism being used in order to justify some of those decisions or in thinking about even just the development of the gas mask itself these questions of will this work on white bodies in the same way that it works on non-white bodies of course it will but you know these were these were questions rooted in deep racism, deep misunderstandings, deep um, imperial ideas, right, that are just omnipresent in this discussion, which I found to be really, really, I wouldn't say surprising, but a stark realization of what was happening in the
1: 1920s, 30s, and even 40s. Yeah, I think one of the things that led me into archives that I hadn't been in before, including the really rich resources of the India office and the colonial office and the foreign office was a realization that there were facilities that were testing both chemical weapons and protection against them in, in the same spots in in Britain that's uh, Porton down in Wiltshire, but there's also a facility in Ralpindi in what's now Pakistan uh, where this was being done. And so they're developing a general right, civilian respirator for what they think of as a quote-unquote sort of normal face. And so then again, these files about what do you do with quote-unquote abnormal faces, they're trying to figure out if they can develop gas masks for folks who've had a tracheotomy, right, which is like protecting a population you wouldn't think is going to be Useful to the state in wartime. So, how do you have gas masks for asthmatics, or gas masks for invalids, or gas masks for people with glasses because they can't fit into regular ones? And so, there are all of these angles where, you know, throughout the war, they're continuing to try to develop them even as they keep to this idea that there's some sort of generic face that their gas mask can fit, right? They're aware of the sort of limitations of that and that it's not just a smaller... I mean, they develop three basic sizes and then they do things like in June of 1939 in this facility um, in the Indian subcontinent, they're lining up Indian women to figure out whether small, medium, or large is going to be the correct size. And the fact that they do the test tells us something. The fact that that test and calculating what size works best doesn't lead to a policy that's going to widely distribute these devices to protect that population tells us something else. Mm.
0: I know when you were finishing the research on this book, it was spring of 2020. And you were on a fellowship in Leeds, and you were called home, or you chose to come home because the world was shutting down. I can imagine writing and finishing this work during the COVID-19 pandemic, especially during the height of it, perhaps change some of the ways you understood these feelings around the gas mask, where you're seeing the state want to desperately protect its civilians through this gas mask. Yet there are people who are viewing it in a much different way when it gets to them. And so much of this to me as a reader paralleled many of the experiences we've lived with over a different type of a mask, the the face mask. And so I wondered for you, do you think any of your argumentation or interpretation of this evidence may be changed as a result of living through this similar period of fraught realities around an object.
1: Well, I have to say that there was something very powerful about writing this and seeing ideas, interpretations that I'd come up with about what the gas mask meant, particularly in the Second World War, how it was being used to curate identity, to determine who was the kind of upstanding citizen who would cheerfully carry their gas mask. In this case, it was not so much about wearing, but carrying your gas mask. That was the message of a campaign that you know starts with the war. There was all of this data about trying to identify who was carrying their mask and trying in the spring of 1941 to make sure that people were still carrying their masks and how carrying a mask became a way to read all kinds of attributes about someone's willingness to support the state. And I sort of come up with that interpretation and had looked at the ways in which not carrying a mask or carrying a mask suddenly had all of these deeper layers about this beyond the object itself, and then all the kind of responses that people were having, right? Mocking the gas mask, mocking people who were carrying their gas mask, taking it very seriously, the gas mask reassuring people, the gas mask being used to say, well, what a waste for the government to be doing this instead of something that could truly help us. There was no, in other words, the government couldn't control how people were going to respond to this. So I had all those thoughts kind of going around as we get to March of 2020, when very helpfully uh, the fellowship that I was on said, we can't guarantee that you can go back across the U.S. border if you don't kind of leave immediately. And that sort of um, moment too, when I came back to a world where we were being told to wear masks, and this is a parallel actually back to um, some research I'd done a long time ago in, during the First World War about the very earliest gas masks when suddenly in April of 1915 circulated in the British national media were these diagrams for how to create a respirator for the women of Britain to make descent to the front. And Suddenly there were patterns in newspapers and online and this idea that we were all supposed to sort of figure out how to make these cloth masks because of the shortage of PPE and money to make sure that that got into the hands of medical people. Professionals who needed it. So I had all of those thoughts kind of going through my head and watching the ways in which wearing a mask so quickly became politicized, so quickly became a way to signal a variety of other things, particularly once it became optional. I mean, one of the things that I think is so interesting about gas mask carrying in World War II in Britain, wearing masks in the sort of height of COVID was that it was always voluntary. Mm-hmm. You know, this was always something you were supposed to do to demonstrate a whole host of other things, the kind of person you were. So there were requirements, but there was a whole set of other things. And what could you do if people were not going to wear a mask? What could you do if people were not going to carry a gas mask? In the height of World War II, there are people suggesting, you know, we should fine people or throw people in jail or these are bad citizens, and we should make them aware that they're bad citizens if they're not carrying their masks. And so I ended up adding an epilogue to the book that takes it into COVID because I just thought I could leave people to draw their own conclusions, but I was going to share some of my thoughts with them as well.
0: Well, Sue, this has been so great to get to talk about The Age of the Gas Mask, published with Cambridge University Press. And I hope that all of our listeners will go out and buy a copy to learn more. Thank
1: you so much. Thank you so much, I've really enjoyed this.